0: Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, featuring voices not necessarily heard on traditional, mainstream, or even public media outlets. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge from Adventures in Waste. This is part one of a special four-part series called the Amazon Defenders. On today's show, we discuss protecting biodiversity from big oil with guest Paul paz Iminio, Associate Director of Amazon Watch. Paul paz Iminio has been at Amazon Watch since 2007. He has been a professional human rights, corporate accountability, and environmental justice advocate since 1993. He has worked with various human rights NGOs, including Amnesty International USA and Human Rights Watch Americas. Paul has lived in Chiapas, Mexico, and Quito, Ecuador, promoting human rights and community development and working directly with indigenous communities. Justice Radio celebrates the land and water protectors of the Amazon rainforest. We are honored to share this four-part series called Amazon Defenders. We begin part one in the Western Amazon to understand how activists are confronting the dirty legacy of oil extraction, stopping the expansion of new oil leases and protecting the rainforest biodiversity. In part two, we investigate the story of a U.S. lawyer named Stephen Donzinger who represented Ecuadorian communities demanding justice from Chevron, Texaco for one of the largest ever oil disasters. Chevron refused to pay and turned Mr. Donzinger into a corporate political prisoner. In part three, we will explore how the implications of deforestation fires and COVID are affecting Brazil and the eastern Amazon region. The Amazon Basin, is home to half of the world's tropical forests. 33% of all plant and animal biodiversity thrive in impenetrable wilderness. Unfortunately, some of the world's most promising oil and gas deposits lie deep in these rainforests, especially in the western Amazon. Moreover, governments and oil companies have opted for expediency and profit over environmental protection. Did you know that much of the Amazon crude is shipped to California? to be processed. We'll talk about that later. The exploitation and destruction for a product responsible for breaking the global climate system continues today at a fevered pace. Oil corporations and their governmental enablers are pushing to drill deeper into the rainforest by building roads and railroad lines, cutting old growth trees, invading indigenous sovereign territories and protected biospheres. Yet the international resistance is building, and communities are fighting back. Can this incredible ecosystem be protected, allowing indigenous societies and wildlife to thrive? In this encore presentation, guest Paul Paz y Migno
1: provides an overview of the rich significance of the Amazon, expands upon what is happening in the western region and how this is connected to the United States and California, and speaks to the growing resistance protecting the rainforest and the rights of indigenous peoples. Thank you for tuning in to Amazon Defenders, Protecting Biodiversity from Big Oil. It is my honor to welcome our guest, Paul Paz y Associate Director of Amazon Watch. Welcome to Ecojustice Radio. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Paul, what is the significance of the Amazon rainforest? Where is it located and what countries does it cover? And How is this connected to the overall global climate?
3: Yeah, okay. Well, so the Amazon is the largest tropical rainforest, um, as most people know, beyond just the river, the forest itself. It actually covers nine different countries, um, Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, French Guyana, Guyana, Peru, Suriname, and Venezuela. And as the world's largest tropical rainforest, it is a regulator of our global climate, not only because of the carbon that it, it takes in, but the moisture that it releases into the atmosphere essentially creates flying rivers that brings rainfall throughout the Americas. So the food many much of the food that's grown in the central United States depends upon the rainfall that come, that's generated by the Amazon. And it's absolutely vital to the preservation of our climate. If we lose the Amazon rainforest, it won't matter what else we do to try to mitigate climate change. There will be no going back. We won't be able to cool the planet enough to prevent a rise in temperature that would be catastrophic. 20% of the Amazon is already deforested. Another 20% of it is degraded. And scientists now believe we're pretty much right at the tipping point. So the rate of deforestation has grown so fast since industrialization, and much of this happens in the western, in the eastern Amazon in Brazil, um, where of course the fires were horrific this year and last year. So that we're at a precipice. I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say on the, on the edge of a cliff because. What we're looking at, if this continues, is the savanification of the Amazon. It won't be able to recover. Um, at this stage, there needs to be an end to deforestation and uh, and work to reforest what can be reforested. But the reason that it's so important is not just because of the climate and the work that it does to capture carbon, but also because, as you mentioned, the biodiversity, there's so much of our world that comes from the Amazon. So many of our plants, there are medicines that have yet to be discovered. There are places in the Amazon that survived the last ice age. The Ecuador, in Ecuador, the Yasuni National Park is the most biodiverse place on earth. And it is sitting right on top of, as you mentioned before, millions of barrels of oil. And that's the crux of what's happening here and why we're why we're so worried about what's going on.
2: And you're the associate director of Amazon Watch. Who's Amazon Watch? What do they do?
3: So Amazon Watch, we're just about to turn 25 next year. And for most of our existence, we've been a pretty small organization working directly in partnerships with indigenous communities who are striving to defend their territory, either from new extraction and development or pursuing justice for previous harms done, like in Chevron's case, which I'm sure we'll get to talk about. So Amazon Watch does its work as a U.S.-based organization, amplifying the voices of indigenous communities. And at the crux of our mission is to raise global awareness to the fact that the most effective way to protect this vital rainforest that I've been talking about is actually to defend and advocate for the rights of indigenous communities. There are hundreds of different indigenous ethnicities across the Amazon. And in fact, 80% of the world's biodiversity is on indigenous territory, not just in the Amazon, but throughout the globe. But by protecting the rights and the territories of indigenous peoples, we can actually do the task that I mentioned before of protecting the Amazon from destruction. So our mechanism is to wage advocacy campaigns with governments and corporations and with businesses and with institutions overseeing businesses, for example, to pressure them to do the right thing, either to not drill for oil or not develop or to advance the campaigns of communities that are protecting their territory.
2: There are corporations uh, that that come from all over the world that focus on extracting resources from the Amazon. And and, and you alluded to it a little bit earlier, but what is it that they are extracting?
3: Well, it depends to a certain degree on where in the Amazon. Obviously, we're talking about such a a large region. Um, Copper is mined, tin, nickel, bauxite, iron ore gold. There's mining for all of these commodities. But on top of that, the oil that I mentioned, and it's important to note that even all of the oil that is in the ground under the Amazon is about a few months of global oil supply. So even if it were all drilled and all refined and shipped everywhere in a few months, we would have lost the rainforest and burned off all of that gas in a short period of time. But it's still there. And the governments are valuing it at, at obviously massive amounts. And that's why corporations and governments want to extract it. In the Brazilian Amazon much more of the territory is deforested for cattle ranching, soy, industrial agriculture. So if you travel to the western, more mountainous region of the Amazon, it's more about oil and mining. And in the eastern Amazon, more about deforestation for commodities.
2: And on today's show, we are going to focus on the western region and the oil extraction. Let's talk about the history, the rich oil history of this region. How long has oil extraction been happening? And how is it being extracted? And where from in this region is it being extracted?
3: Well, it it might come as no surprise that the first company to drill for oil in the Amazon was from the United States, Texaco, which is now Chevron. And it's about as bad as you could imagine. They left a legacy of poisoning communities and environmental destruction that has yet to be paralleled in history. The worst oil related disaster, 16 billion, actually probably many billions more, but legally understood to be at least 16 billion gallons of toxic waste deliberately dumped there. So in the 1960s, Texaco went and started investigating for oil in the northern Ecuadorian Amazon. And since that time, it has spread obviously Peru as well, Colombia, a lot of oil in Venezuela, Less of it from the Amazon, but Venezuela is a very oil rich country, of course. And oil companies at the time, when they first started, we're talking about international and U.S. oil companies. But each of these countries now has their own national oil company. And then other regional oil companies have come in. And the process now is to basically siphon off or demarcate into what are called oil blocks and auction them off to international oil companies for exploitation. Many of these oil blocks, of course, are on indigenous territories. And many of the communities that we work with are actively on a daily basis fighting to protect their territories from new oil exploration or trying to get companies to clean up the toxic waste that they've already either deliberately dumped or spilled through negligence.
2: Well, what's the oversight? I mean, is it is it government entities that are the oversight here? Is there any oversight? And how does that play into the indigenous communities? How, do they get any oversight on this? And mm-hmm. are they giving consent?
3: Well, it varies from country to country quite a bit. The situation in Ecuador and Peru... While there are a lot of similarities between communities fighting oil companies, and there's a lot of similarities to the devastation cause, there's a very great difference in the governments. Now, first, it's important to say, as far as oversight, Convention 189 of the International Labor Organization and the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples sets a precedent called, or a recognized norm, called FPIC, Free Prior and Informed Consent. And this is the rights of the Indigenous communities to approve or disapprove of any activity that take place on their territory. And this is what oil companies and governments try to circumvent or undermine or ignore or basically present false evidence to say that they have achieved it in order to operate on their territories. There are continual legal battles within these countries and internationally to argue that governments and or corporations are violating that right. In Ecuador, the Warani recently won a case in their own government courts saying that their rights were violated when there was drilling on the Warani territory. And the community of Sarayaku in Ecuador years ago won a case before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights that the government of Ecuador had violated their rights by operating in their territory. They were forced to pay reparations. They were forced to apologize. They were forced to remove mines that had been placed when they were looking for oil. And it was a massive victory and a really important one for the rights of indigenous communities. In Peru, on the other hand, there's much less opportunity and victories when it comes to legal battles. But in Peru, Amazon Watch is very proud to have partnered with communities that have continually kicked out oil companies that have sought to drill for oil. And for one reason or another, it becomes eventually too expensive because they can't overcome the indigenous resistance there. Occidental Petroleum famously polluted the northern Peruvian Amazon, similarly to what Chevron did in Ecuador. And the legacy of that destruction has shown other indigenous communities how important it is to be resolute in their resistance. So Block 64 is a famous block in Peru that ConocoPhillips tried to drill. Talisman Energy tried to drill. Working with Achuar and others, we kicked out Geopark, a Chilean oil company. Again, the same concession. They bid for it. And the resistance is so strong that they can't drill. Unfortunately, that's not the case in most places. And there's continued drilling and spilling. There's an average of one oil spill a day in Ecuador and Peru. And this year, the largest one in 15 years in Ecuador, which polluted the Coca River and 15,000, sorry, 35,000 Ecuadorians, but 21,000 of them indigenous people have been affected by it and had their food sources dry up in the middle of a pandemic when they couldn't go and seek outside sources of food. So the tragedy is on a continued basis. And despite what government, you know, the laws that may or may not have been passed, there continues to be this operation. And we might get into more later too. A lot of it is backed by Chinese Loans in the case of Ecuador specifically. So there are a lot of large players, whether it's U.S. oil companies, Chinese backed loans, regional oil companies. Everyone is circling around what they see as these oil rich resources that they want to exploit and confronting resistance.
2: So we're talking about the regulatory issues and the different countries that have a vested interests financially in, in the Amazon. Let's talk about the United States for a second. We have oil in the United States. We are going to have, if it all goes the way they like, we're going to have the largest oil extraction area in the Permian Basin in Texas, larger than Saudi Arabia. So why is it that the United States wants to go down to the Amazon, take this crude that's really hard to get to, it's in the middle of a rainforest, and then Mm -hmm. ship that buck up to the United States? And we'll talk about this later, so we don't have to get into the details yet. But a lot of the time, too, it's shipped across the United States, but it goes to California, a lot of it, to be processed. So is that because of the regulatory issues that the United States wants to come, U.S. and Canada want to come down here or come down there to, to extract?
3: Well, there's a lot of different market forces competing for where to sell this oil. Ecuador, for example, has Chinese loans that they have to repay in oil. And there are a lot of middlemen between when it's extracted, when it's refined or when it's shipped to be refined somewhere else. And as you mentioned a lot of it from this part of the world ends up in California. About 40% of the oil that comes out of the Western Amazon gets refined in California. Most of that at the Chevron refinery in El Segundo in Southern California, but in in all the refineries up up the state. But under the Obama administration, the U.S. became the number one exporter of fossil fuels. So yes, while we're exporting it, the U.S. is also bringing it in. And the funny thing is, or that the, Tragic thing, in a way, is that as climate justice activists push for a reduction in oil, and basically we need a managed decline throughout the world, but especially in the United States of California, the tension is often, oh, well, if we can't drill more in California then we're going to be forced to buy more oil from Ecuador. And you don't want us to do that because it's affecting the Amazon and indigenous peoples trying to kind of pit people against each other, which is why it's actually really important that indigenous communities are aligning between the North and the South to stop this kind of extraction in every area. Because it's a fallacy that they need to export and import this oil. The truth, however, is that countries like Ecuador are very dependent upon oil and the export to continue to keep their economies going, especially with COVID, because the tourism industry in Ecuador was the most powerful, actually, even more than oil. And that's been decimated since the global pandemic. But when they've attempted to appeal to the global community to help them not drill that oil, there was a very famous initiative that Ex-President Correa started called the Yasuni Initiative, and it was to essentially turn to the world and say, we have this resource in the Amazon, we're going to leave it protected. In exchange, the world will pay for us not drilling that oil. It, it's different than a car. It's not an offset. It wasn't meant to be. And Amazon, watcher want to be clear, sees offsets as a false solution, that it just harms other communities. Someone is going to suffer from where it's drilled or burned. It may not be this community, but it's going to be that community. You can be sure it's going to be a community of color or an indigenous community that pays the highest price. So we're opposed to that, but this was different than that. The rest of the world didn't didn't come together and it fell apart. And actually, Korea was one of the people that was essentially undermining it, we found out later in negotiating these Chinese loans. But whether or not there's like there's not a coordinated effort that we can see between where someone decides we're going to import this oil from this area and drill it from somewhere else. There's just a massively moving global market for selling and reselling oil. And much of it comes right up here right because it makes the most sense, I guess, logistically for the tankers to go from the Western Amazon up to California. Some go to Texas, but most of it comes here. And what Amazon Watch has been doing is trying to work with the government of California to regulate that and say that just like Blood diamonds, you know, should be prevented and no one should be accept- allowing the import of conflict items. All of this oil is devastating, not just to the environment, but to these indigenous communities. So we want there be, to be some regulations to prevent that. But as I mentioned, then we come up against, well, you know, Gavin Newsom would say, well, then we're going to have to drill for more, allow more fracking or drill more for more oil. And he has still been permitting new licenses for, exactly. for fossil fuels.
2: And we'll get into a little bit on, you know, how this plays into oil spills and the dumping and all of that in a moment. And we'll take a break right now.
1: Hey listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and every Monday at 9 a.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website ecojusticeradio.org to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. Today we are featuring an encore presentation of Amazon defenders protecting biodiversity from big oil with Paul Paz Minho, associate director
2: of Amazon Watch. Paul, as you mentioned that uh, with the lack of these regulations, with the oil spills that are happening, the recent recently there was a, a very large oil spill. We have the effects of COVID nineteen that are affecting the communities down, the indigenous communities down in the Amazon rainforest. How does the lack of these regulations? specifically affect the community what is it that they are seeing in their community as it pertains to their health to their livability in that area what is the effect
3: Well, first, I mean, it's important to note there's been almost a million and a half cases of COVID in the Amazon. 34,000 people have died. 73,000 of those cases have been indigenous people. And there's been over 2,000 indigenous deaths. And many of these communities, obviously, they live communally. So it's much more difficult to distance and prevent the spreading of the virus once it reaches communities. And some communities, we didn't mention this before, but there still remain many isolated communities in voluntary isolation throughout the Amazon. So one person being infected there could completely wipe out the community. And that has happened over the course of the last few decades with oil exploration because you can't just politely sit down in the middle of the jungle Drill your oil, ship it out on a tanker and say, thanks very much. You know, we're done here. We'll move on to the next place you move in with massive roads. They come with towns and oil workers. It brings violence against women, prostitution, crime. And then the surrounding areas are devastated by those effects and indigenous communities start to get pushed back further. They can't hunt where they normally do. They can't fish there. Then they start becoming dependent upon the the town to buy their food And that cycle starts to erode to the point where the communities are essentially decimated. So we've seen this already in the northern Ecuadorian Amazon where Texaco first went. And now further east around where I mentioned Yasuni National Park and elsewhere in that area that remains protected, that's where now the government of Ecuador is trying to drill. And there may be regulations, but as you might expect... There is a lack of enforcement or when communities do take action in court, like around this recent oil spill, they're dismissed and the government ministries may be essentially greenwashing the supposed cleanup operations of oil companies because of the political pressure that they get. And in Peru, it's actually much worse than that. So the communities rely upon international exposure and attention to this. And when we can generate international attention from bodies like the Inter-American Commission or the American Court or the United Nations, that's an important step because in many cases, that's the only recourse that they have. But it's not exaggeration to say it's, it's wiping out the lives of many indigenous communities in the Western Amazon, very much like the fires and deforestation in in Brazil has done. And they feel like this is in many cases an ethnocide and there's indigenous communities. Many of these, especially in the Ecuadorian border with Peru, these are warrior tribes like the achuar of Peru and Ecuador and the Shuar pride themselves as fighters. Now, they're not taking up arms to fight these oil companies, but they're very much seeing this as a battle for their survival. And when they challenge oil companies and go to them, they say, you know, we're fighting for our lives and we're fighting for the forest. And this is about our existence. It's not just about, well, you know, we like this area. We don't want you to despoil it. It's a life or death situation.
2: And you just mentioned recourse, and, and that was what I wanted to ask you about. Are there any protections or recourse for the environmental destruction, the human rights issues, and the, the health issues, the displacement? And you were saying that there's very little?
3: There's very little. And, you know, as I mentioned, that first oil company, this is kind of like peeling the can of worms right here, right? Texaco, which became Chevron set the precedent that a U.S. company could just go right into Ecuador and to the Amazon and pollute intentionally for decades and never do anything to clean it up. And they've used their might as one of the largest corporations in the United States to escape with complete impunity to this day. And that sends a massively terrible signal to the rest of the companies operating there because it's a lawlessness to the point where why would any other company fear that they're ever going to be held account if this company that admitted to the destruction? That's a really important thing to remember. They they said, yes, we did. And what happened is They drilled for oil. When you drill for oil, you first extract drilling waters—heavy waters laced with carcinogens and other toxic chemicals—and the process for a hundred years or more has been to store those foundation waters in a tank and then re-inject them into the earth. And that was the process in the United States by law when Texaco went to Ecuador. But there wasn't a law there that said they had to do it at the time, and it was an incredibly oil-friendly government at the time in Ecuador. And so Texaco made the assessment that it would save them about $3 a barrel if they simply dug pits in the earth and dumped the toxic waste there. They didn't even bother to line it. They set up a system of goose pipes so that when the rain falls, which, of course, it does every day in the rainforest, the water would travel through those pits and be released into local streams. And that's what these indigenous communities were drinking from and bathing in and continued to do so. And they set up about a thousand of these pits. And then when their consortium was done, they took their money in the early 90s and left. And they made a token measure of saying, here's $40 million, we'll clean up a portion of these pits. And they pushed dirt over top of them, told people it was safe to live there, and then left. And since that time, Since 1993, these indigenous and farmer communities have been fighting a legal battle just to get Chevron to pay to clean that up and to give them assistance for the health crisis that they've that they've suffered as a consequence. And so in 2011, a judge in Ecuador awarded what essentially came to nine point five billion dollars and said that Texaco needed to pay or Chevron needed to pay. And they said, no, we're not going to pay. We're pulling our assets out. We're going to fight till hell freezes over. Then we'll fight it out on the ice. And then they turned around and counter sued the very people who sued them, saying that it was all a scam and that it was just a get rich quick scheme by some lawyers in New York and their partners in Ecuador that were trying to expose and exploit Chevron because it was so rich. The company that admitted to deliberately essentially poisoning the area there said they were the victim. And what's so, and you could probably hear it in my voice, like, as I talk about this, the frustration is that if this oil company can set this precedent, admit to the crime, have decades of legal battles and never be held to account, then what hope have we to fight in this climate justice movement? How can we hold the fossil fuel industry to account for anything it does? If it's most heinous crimes, Go unavenged essentially, or, or just are left uncleaned up and, and without any recourse and so the indigenous communities in Ecuador they fought there, they've fought in Canada, they have fought before international tribunals, they have fought in the United States, and still Chevron hasn 't paid to clean up that to me is a terrifying signal for the climate movement, and I really want to see Chevron at the top of the list. Of companies that we come together as a movement to hold to account for what they did in Ecuador. And it's happened again, as I mentioned, Occidental Petroleum, similar situation in Peru, other oil companies come and go, they drill, they dump, they leave, and they leave back a toxic mess that the governments are left to either clean up or not clean up.
2: So we've been talking about Chevron, Texaco, what's been happening Uh, You you just shared the story of this long fight that's been happening in the the Amazon with the indigenous peoples there. There's a movie, if our listeners want to check it out, it's called Crude. It's been out for quite a while, really breaks this down. There's a lawyer that has been prosecuted correctly or is being prosecuted, has pretty much lost their autonomy. Can you speak to that?
3: Yeah. Bottom line, so Steven Doziger, who has been a, a principal lawyer since the beginning, since Texaco was first sued by the Ecuadorians in the early 90s, has been the stated target of a campaign by Chevron to essentially destroy him for the work that he did to help them actually win their case. So, first, it should never be ignored. Texaco admitted to deliberately creating this. Texaco and Chevron lost. Indigenous people sued and won a $9.5 billion judgment, the largest ever and the first time indigenous people ever able to do this. And what did Chevron do? They realized that they could not defend themselves on the merits. So they started to go after the lawyers and they spun this narrative and they've spent Billions of dollars hired 60 law firms, 2,000 legal professionals for decades to stop the enforcement of this. And it all comes down to preventing Stephen Donziger, who, despite amazing odds, was able to keep this case going for so long. Remember, there was there was a lawsuit in New York that went for almost 10 years. And then that was moved to Ecuador and that went for eight years. And then there was an international enforcement action in, in Canada. And then there was a RICO case brought against them here. Each of these cases is almost a decade long and Stephen has had to work to try to fight them, either as the plaintiff to sue on behalf of the Ecuadorians or defending himself from the attacks. And what they've done at this point is they've had him disbarred. They bribed a witness to lie, to say that that he, who was a judge in Ecuador, had been bribed by Donziger, provided no evidence. The evidence that they did give was fabricated and disproven. But despite that, Stephen was found guilty of racketeering. And by the way... They didn't just go after Stephen. They said Amazon Watch, Rainforest Action Network, all these other organizations, bloggers, journalists, environmental groups were all part of this massive conspiracy. And they came after us as well. But they took Stephen Donzinger's license away. And then after they won their RICO decision, which meant that no one could enforce the Ecuadorian verdict in the United States where Chevron's headquarters is, even though they won, they still went after Stephen. They sued him personally for $60 billion, initially the largest amount any individual has ever been sued for in the history of the United States. And then after all of that, when he continued to work to enforce the verdict in Canada and elsewhere, they went back to the same judge and they had him put on house arrest because he refused to turn over his privileged information, his computer and his cell phone and his passwords to the court, So they could give it to Chevron and Chevron would continue intimidating people working with Donziger. So ultimately, right now, he's being criminally prosecuted for contempt of court in a civil case because he said to the judge, I am not going to turn over my computer to you and I'm going to appeal that to the higher court, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. While he's waiting for that court to review his contesting that judge's order, The judge went to the federal prosecutor in New York, asked them to prosecute him criminally. It's a misdemeanor, but it's a criminal misdemeanor in a civil case, and they said no, twice. So this judge hired a private law firm, a corporate law firm that it turns out had also worked for Chevron to criminally prosecute this lawyer who was lawfully contesting the judge's order and waiting for the higher court to decide. And so he's been on house arrest now for 15 months. He's facing on top of that, at least six months in jail, no lawyer has been through what he's been through in the history of the United States. No lawyer has been held for this long on house arrest for a charge that would carry a maximum of six months fine. And what is the reason? He beat one of the largest corporations in the United States, and they want him to go away, and he hasn't gone away. So they have 55 Nobel laureates ex-judges, everybody that you can imagine who's actually concerned with justice has stood up and said, what's happening to Stephen Donzinger is wrong. We need to stop it. But no one's paying attention. It's not on CNN. It's not in the New York Times. And part of that is because of Chevron's might and pressure, even on journalists, to keep this story buried. And that's really why it's so important that people are talking about it now, and uh, unlike they have been in many years.
2: And we are going to be talking about, so part two of the show, we're going to dive in deeper and and talk about Stephen Dossinger and and what's happening and what people can do, but really dive deep into that story. And what has the role of the United States been in all of this? We talked about that California is processing, you said, 40% of the Amazonian crude is being processed in, in California. And then, so what's been the role of the United States? Is it, where is it, is it processing across the United States and what has their role been in silencing this conversation as well?
3: Yeah. So the United States has allowed, essentially it's allowed its judicial system to be used to refuse access to justice for indigenous and Brown people, essentially from that, you know, it's continued a very imperialistic approach and any justice focused system would actually say, let's review what happened based on the merits. But what happened in this case is that Chevron was able to preemptively sue and the judge, Judge Lewis Kaplan in the Southern district of New York refused to allow contamination and the evidence of contamination, the underlying reason for the whole thing to be a part of that proceeding. It wasn't even allowed to be uttered in his court. So Chevron has basically weaponized the judicial system, to crush its biggest critics and to violate the right to justice that indigenous and farmer communities in Ecuador have. And that's why there, during the Correa administration, which obviously was not a very U.S.-friendly administration, and he was a populist president, and for all of the problems that we do have with him as an organization, Amazon watched it, he was definitely not rolling over to U.S. pressure, but it showed that the relationship between the United States and Ecuador was going to continue to be our oil companies come first and your rights come second. And so as the United States continues to profit off of the extraction of that oil there, that paradigm continues to exist. And unless we turn around and say, as a country, we're going to not only stop importing this oil, which is contributing to all of our collective destruction by destroying the environment, we're going to turn around and make up for the consequences of our profiting off of the destruction of the rainforest for so many years by allowing corporations like Chevron to get away with it. And they've tried to do more. like They tried to get Ecuador's trade status revoked many times with different administrations. They haven't succeeded in that. But Paul Manafort went down and met with Ecuadorian government before Trump took office when they were in their campaign. They tried over and over again to get the U.S. government to just make Ecuador make the case go away. And now the last stage in that is that Chevron has used a bilateral trade agreement between the United States and Ecuador to say that ultimately the government of Ecuador didn't adequately protect Chevron from its own people when it allowed them to civilly sue them for a cleanup. Because by the terms of the trade agreement, Chevron shouldn't have to pay. And so they're using that to say Ecuador should pay Chevron's debt. And the U.S. government is saying, if you don't respect this, then your international status as a country that can receive loans, IMF loans, U.S. support is at risk, ultimately using their relationship to deny justice to the people that were harmed.
1: Hey listeners, quick break here. We hope that you are enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles and every Monday at 9 a.m. on KPFT Houston. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website ecojusticeradio.org to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. Today we are featuring an encore presentation of Amazon Defenders, protecting biodiversity from big oil with Paul paz
0: Iminio, Associate Director of Amazon Watch. And you're listening to Ecojustice Radio. We are discussing part one of Amazon Defenders, Protecting Biodiversity from Big Oil with Paul paz Iminio, Associate Director of Amazon Watch.
2: Paul, what does the local resistance movement look like in the Amazon rainforest and specifically in the area that we've been speaking to tonight, the Western region of mm-hmm. the Amazon?
3: hmm well, Ecuador actually has the largest international, or sorry, the largest indigenous association of any country, CONAI, which is an, a national federation of indigenous peoples. And then each one has its regional body. So CONFENYA is the regional association of indigenous peoples of the Ecuadorian Amazon. And each of those communities is organized. So there are many different indigenous ethnicities in Ecuador, and those communities have representatives that are part of this. And Amazon Watch and other international organizations work directly with these federations to help them organize to prevent incursions into their territory or to call for cleanups or to hold their government to account. In fact, a year ago, about a year and a month ago, many indigenous communities marched in Quito. There were uprisings in Ecuador. It started as uprisings against austerity measures put in place to appease the IMF. And it grew into a large, the largest indigenous resistance we'd seen in Ecuador in many, many years. And they actually force the government to back down and roll back those austerity measures. But part of what they were saying is in addition to that, you have to respect the rights of our territories and allow us to have free prior and informed consent before any operations or extractions take place. But the movement looks different in different places. And obviously, depending upon whether we're talking in an area that's already been exploited and extracted where continued violations happen like in the Northern Ecuador Oriente region, where Texaco drilled, or in areas where it remains untouched. These communities are building alliances to share information and have a joint resistance. One group that Amazon Watch works with frequently is not an official elected association, but they're called Mujeres Amazonicas, and it's, it's an association of indigenous women that have come together in Ecuador to say, we bear the hardest brunt of all of the effects of this, of oil extraction. They they have to suffer the physical violence, the emotional violence, the attacks from from men from outside, but also sometimes from within. And they're the the ones who are responsible for, in their view, caring for the area, not only the children, but the region. And so they marched to presidential palace in Ecuador and demanded that the government recognize their right to be free from this kind of violence and destruction. And that's grown into an international movement that they've met with other indigenous women. They signed an indigenous treaty with other women from the Americas to stand together, united in resistance. So it's grown and it's an incredibly beautiful thing to see because There's already, and we're going to talk about this later, but, you know, there's an indigenous prophecy that says when the eagle of the north and the condor of the south fly together, indigenous peoples will unite in the human family. And that's what this resistance is bringing out the resistance to pipelines in the Americas in North America and Canada and the United States the resistance to the drilling and pipeline on indigenous territories in the territories in the Amazon and much of this is led by women and so Amazon watch has a very special focus specifically on empowering and allying and supporting women that are standing up in resistance and, and we're trying to help that grow in Peru and in Colombia and other places and, and in Brazil some of the most Charismatic, powerful leaders in this movement are indigenous women Sonia Guajajara in Brazil and Monte Neguima in, in, of the Warani in Ecuador, who was on the cover of Time magazine not too long as one of the top 100 most influential people. So there is a lot of hope. In this resistance and its growth and, you know, our mechanisms for sharing the stories of resistance, because that's how we connect with it. You know, when we bring community members of Sarayaku in Ecuador to Standing Rock, so that they could connect directly and be a part of that joint struggle. And once those bonds are made, They stay throughout the the resistance. And we're kind of privileged as an organization to be able to do that and feel very honored to have that role as a non-Indigenous organization, but putting at the forefront the voices of those communities in resistance and then working to support their direct needs.
2: And how are those communities coming together? So we talked about the North America and the South America activists, the movements that are Fighting against big oil, fighting these pipeline infrastructures, North Dakota, what's happening in in the southern portion of the United States. And how are these movements, these energies coming together and supporting one another? What is happening there? And and if you, as you mentioned, if you like, talking a bit about the Condor Eagle prophecy.
3: Mm -hmm. One of the things that helps, I think, unify people is that in many cases, they have the same adversary. What communities are doing in resistance now with international organizations is targeting the finances behind this extraction, because it's not even just the oil companies. They're actually a dying breed. Like The fossil fuel age is and will end, but these companies are still seeking financial support from large lenders and banks. And those are the same ones funding the Coda Access Pipeline, are funding extraction in the Western Ecuadorian Amazon and Peru and other places. So when someone from a community like Standing Rock is going to challenge the CEO of BlackRock, for example, or working to go after J.P. Morgan Chase or Wells Fargo, they're bringing the message from their allies in the Amazon at the same time because of that connection. This is not just about what you're doing here. It's about what you're enabling there. And you can't use that argument like I was saying before of, well, if we don't get the oil here, we can just get it over there because these communities are standing united in that resistance. And that means that there's less... Uh, opportunity, I suppose, for the the financiers of this kind of destruction to get away with it. But it also means that if you've watched organizations like 350.org, Sierra Club, you know, some of the largest organizations focusing on climate, they're putting Indigenous voices at the front of their marches, of their messaging, of their organizing. Just like when communities stood together and said, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement, We're going to listen to the voices of black people who are calling for justice and their demands and put them at the forefront. That is happening more and more in the climate and environmental movement. And it's because of that, I believe, because of that unification. And that's, I think, what that prophecy was essentially about, uniting humanity, uniting the human family, the movement for justice, the movement for social justice, racial justice, environmental justice, coming together with indigenous peoples, demonstrating not only a way to coexist with nature that that actually is symbiotic and allows for the preservation of of our systems, but also how to resist because they've been doing it for hundreds of years, facing extinction and resisting that destruction.
2: And we're talking about the people who are already involved, the activists who might be listening to this show right now and have a little bit of an idea of what's been going on and have an opinion based on that and have taken action in some way, shape or form. The Amazon rainforest is most people have never been. there. Mm-hmm. It is a faraway land. A lot of people may not know how large it is or where it's even located. So how do you get people to make those connections and care?
3: Well, fortunately, you got to focus on the good parts of things like social media, right? Because there's so many bad parts to, and we've survived the Twitter presidency, right? But the ability to bring those stories to so many people that quickly and connect on a human level is a game changer. And I think more than anything else, the youth movement gets that. There's very few barriers between a 14-year-old indigenous woman in Ecuador fighting for the, to defend her family from oil destruction and an activist living in Richmond, California, in the shadow of the Chevron refinery there who has asthma, who is fighting to protect her family. And so when they can connect and see each other's stories and then motivate their community to stand up together in resistance, that movement grows that much faster. And, you know, our goal as an organization is to facilitate that as much as possible. What are the barriers to that communication? Bring them down. Spend time and money and effort on making those connections. And right now the challenge is of course we can't bring people because of the coronavirus. We can't bring activists to confront CEOs directly or indigenous activists from the Amazon. So we're doing it all over Zoom and we're, you know, we're we're making videos and trying to get them in front of as many people. But we do have an opportunity because Everyone is coming together to target those financiers that I was talking about before. BlackRock is a name that most people hadn't even heard of a couple of years ago. And now it's at the top of the list when people talk about who is financing climate destruction. And they are feeling nervous. They are feeling the pressure. They are feeling the divestment movement affecting them. They are feeling the I believe the worry about this new administration And what it's going to say to Wall Street, because we had a presidential candidate for the first time stand up and say, yeah, the oil industry needs to go away. I mean, that was like the best moment of this entire thing. Almost as good as seeing Trump lose was seeing Biden say that because we're pushing really hard to make sure that his administration works to regulate the finance industry that is funding extraction and deforestation, and that's BlackRock, that's J.P. Morgan Chase, that's these large Bank of America, the BMS that are funding this type of work. And if they don't have a place in this new administration, or if they're seen as the foils in this battle to defend our climate, then we can unite that movement even more so to go after what's really behind this, which is who's writing the checks for these oil companies to go in and extract this oil.
2: You were just mentioning the movement among the youth and how also on social media has been so very important and active and, and getting information out there. And then there's these amazing artists, right? Like there is this cartoon that I know Chevron's not very happy with, correct? But it's called yeah. Donny Rico. So maybe our listeners can go look that up. Donny Rico, do you want to speak to that, that for a moment?
3: Yeah, we did with Pulitzer Prize winning animator, Mark Fiore, also Italian American, Mark Fiore. So he created the character of Donny Rico as a satirical, and this is before Trump, a satirical character that represented, you know, big oil companies using the law that was designed to go after the mafia. There's Rico law to shut down people that were trying to hold Chevron to account, which is which is how they sued Donzinger and how they roped Amazon Watch and other organizations into So that's what we use Donnie Rico to do. And it worked quite well.
2: And I would tell the listeners then go go watch these videos, the Donny Rico. They can find it on YouTube or Amazon Watch.
3: On Amazon Watch's YouTube page, we we did a whole playlist. There's five Donnie Rico. They're like two, three minutes long. They're not very long, but
2: well, in addition to, to watching these cartoons, what else can people do to push back against these oil companies and help make significant changes to support the longevity of the Amazon rainforest and the indigenous peoples?
3: Yeah. Well, everybody has a responsibility, in my view, to be a climate activist of some sort, for sure. And, like And This affects us all. It's not something that we're going to change just by recycling or even changing our own habits, which it does help, but that's not going to fix it. You have to get involved either politically or economically in pushing for that change. So depending greatly upon where you live, there are groups that have targeted campaigns focusing in the United States, almost everywhere on some aspect of the oil industry, whether it's fracking, oil uh, refining and exploration, or uh, in this or pipelines. So I would encourage everybody to find out what that local environmental justice battle is, where they are, and at least be informed about it. Because the company hopes and prays that you don't know and you let it go and you won't support politicians that are challenging it. So that's step one. But really, as I mentioned before, it's going after the financing of this. That's how we're going to make this change actually happen. And that means pressuring whatever institution you're a part of you need to personally divest but if if you're connected to a university if you're part of a union if you're part of a corporation you have your own retirement funds you need to take all of those steps to extract to to divest from extraction in the oil industry and then join the campaigns that are saying there's a what's called the stop the money pipeline Your local politician, we even have an Amazon platform that we're asking politicians to adhere to, which would prevent them from supporting extraction and deforestation and allowing their, whatever their local federal government, whatever level they're at. Uh, allowing the government to participate in business that's going to uh, harm the environment and harm the Amazon specifically. So if you go to amazonplatform.com, you can find out about that. And then you can write to whoever your representative is, even if it's locally, even if it's just your city, and ask them to adopt that platform. But with this new administration, I think we're going to see a lot more opportunities for people to put pressure on them.
2: And we have to put pressure. We cannot be stagnant in being happy, or maybe our listeners aren't happy, but I think many probably are in that the administration is going to change. And, but we can't become stagnant within that because it's our voice. It's our power that's going to, to hopefully make them do what it is that we want them to do. And we have to push and make that change known. Uh, where else can people get more information about Amazon Watch?
3: So AmazonWatch.org is a great place to start. Chevrontoxico.com is actually the site that we built specifically about the Chevron case. So if you want to dive more deeply into the history of that case, there's a lot of videos there and there's a, a brief explanation of what it's about. The Amazon platform that I talked about, we started a group called Artists for Amazonia. So if there are artists out there, it's been, you know, mostly more famous actors and some musicians, but it's open to various artists that want to get engaged and involved in organizing their communities. So artistsforamazonia.org is a place to go as well. And then through those, you know, if you sign up, if you take any one of our actions, that we offer on our website, you'll get follow-up information as to how to stay engaged in that campaign. And then we often promote and work with other allies like Friends of the Earth, 350, Sierra Club, Rainforest Action Network, local groups in areas in California that are challenging the refineries that I mentioned before, Communities for a Better Environment, Asian Pacific Environmental Network. So if you if you follow us on Twitter at amazonwatch.org, you'll see promotion a lot of those partner messages as well and there's there's ways to engage and that's what's the paradigm shift basically of we know now the fossil fuel age is ending and we're supporting movements for environmental justice that are that are putting climate justice first indigenous peoples first and the right way to move us into a new age where we actually respect the rights of nature and the communities that are coexisting with it
2: well thank you paul and i want to remind our listeners as well that Ecojustice Radio is a project of the local 350.org chapter, SoCal 350, and um, we act in allyship with the many organizations that are here working on the frontline and fence line issues, uh, especially against Chevron and uh, the refineries that we have been speaking about today. Thank you, Paul, for being on the show today. I really appreciate it.
3: Thank you. It was great.
1: Thank you to our guest today, Paul Paz y and thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been an encore presentation of Amazon Defenders, protecting biodiversity from big oil. Please connect with us on social media at EcoJustice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, well, you know what to do. Subscribe to our podcast, share the episodes, get that information out there, and help us continue our efforts by making a donation to the show at EcoJusticeRadio.org.
0: You have been listening to Ecojustice Radio, a project of SoCal 350. The show can be found on all major podcast apps and at EcojusticeRadio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morris, executive producer Jack I, producer Amelia Barras, engineer Blake Lampkin, interview hosted by Jessica Aldridge from Adventures in Waste, and original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.